Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basawad. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I'm based in private practice in Harley Street. And I'm delighted to be joined by someone today who prefers to remain anonymous. And he's the author of a fantastic new book published by Picador entitled The Reluctant Carer Dispatches from the Edge of Life. And the author is down as The Reluctant Carer. So, Mr. Reluctant Carer, why have you written this book anonymously? Good question. I think there's a few answers to that. The first one was really very practical. Um, looking after two people, elderly, vulnerable people who have a landline, a number of which has been in the old fashioned phone book for I don't know how long. Um, a good part of my time was spent sort of defending them, really, if you like, from uh, various sort of incoming individuals, organisations, sort of trying to really scam them. It's quite alarming. Um, how much of that stuff there is doesn't seem to matter whether you exit various directories in one thing or another. You know, my, my, my father also had kind of put his toe into the digital waters and so I had an email address and, you know, they had no idea about trying to defend their data. It, 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 so when I, when I started writing, certainly when I realised there was a chance this book was going to be published, I thought, I don't want to draw any more attention to this household, to the vulnerability of its occupants, to reveal its location. And um, so there was there, that was the practical reason for it, if you like. Also, by the time the book had become a thing, I'd already been there for a couple of years by that point. Um, I had, and, and particularly as the book came close to publication this month, um, or in the months leading up to now, I, I thought, if I... If I make this address and our awareness and our family public, then I, I, I kind of need, and I have escaped, I don't use the term lightly, that situation. I mean, things have changed. I've also slightly been ushered out of it. But uh, I thought, I don't want to have to go back. If, if being there full time taught me anything, it would be that I did not want to go back there full time. So the idea that through publicizing the situation, cathartic, though that may be for me and hopefully useful to others, the situation would then reclaim me because I had made the vulnerable more vulnerable again. I, I wasn't going to do that in a hurry. So for that reason, I, I kept my name off it. But there was also um, another perhaps more personal reason, which was that when I started writing, it began, I suppose, as a piece of things I was writing for myself, like a diary or journaling is the popular term. I was doing it to just make sense of this thing that was happening that I couldn't really process. And I couldn't really, I felt at that point, talk to anyone about. So the writings came out of that. Once I realized that this was a subject that people were interested in and they, people were responding, you know, the, the people that I did speak to in a very positive way about my response to it. And I, I, I published a few, art, initially an article in The Guardian um, anonymously. I also really didn't want to censor myself. I thought, I don't want to ask my family if they're okay with what I'm saying. I thought if this writing has value, it will be in its... Uh, insofar as one can be honest, you know, 100%, it, it, it will be in its honesty. And I didn't want to have to worry about what anyone close to me might think, because I think I understood quite early on that this was, a, insofar as the text would have value, this would be something for other people in the same situation. So I didn't want, I didn't want to have to ask people to sign off on it, if you know what I mean. Okay, so the book basically is about the fact that both um, of your parents become elderly and very unwell and practically incapacitated. Um, the, the book begins with um, a phone call over a serious medical condition to do with your father, and you basically um, have to move in to look after them. So tell us a bit more of kind of the arc of the plot of what happens in the story. Well, yeah, so my, my, 
my, my dad was a bit younger than my mother. They're both in their late eighties at this point, but my mother was much healthier than my dad. So my, my dad was prone to, you know, a number of ailments, comorbidities. Um, and he was getting to a point where he was more often unwell than well. Um, he would intermittently be hospitalized and it would take quite, it would be quite difficult to kind of re-embed him into the dynamic of living in the house because he'd come back different every time. So I had got into the habit of coming back when he was in trouble. And then uh, what eventually happened was that I got into some trouble myself. I, I, my marriage um, ended and, you know, I had a very difficult situation with my work, which kind of mainly disappeared. So it, it, in a very short order, um, not only was my dad ill, um, but I, I needed to move back into the house for my own reasons. He, it, it became immediately obvious that it was much easier for them if I was there than if I wasn't. And then my mum did get ill as well. So then it was kind of like, oh, okay, this really is the new reality. And basically the book is about how middle-aged people, our age, you, you and me, um, kind of think we're middle-aged, uh, whatever that means, have to now in this current epoch we live in with people getting older and older and staying alive, um, yet being increasingly elderly and infirm, we are landed holding the baby, as it were, looking after them. And it's a bit of a taboo subject. People are not able to talk about it directly, which you do very um, honestly, painfully honestly in the book, and it's very unusual. First of all, do you agree that this is an important subject and yet it isn't really tackled um, oh, by and large? Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with that more wholeheartedly. I mean, it is like many things in life. If you go and fish around in the specifics of these things on the Internet, you come to understand quite quickly there are large. Well, you can't really call them communities because they're not necessarily connected or coherent in a particular way, other than occasionally through sort of groups that you might anticipate existing or via charities. But the statistics, which I don't have to hand, I've seen one in eight people in this country are doing it. I've seen bigger statistics than that, and I haven't had time to drill down into which statistics are the real statistics. But it's a considerable amount of people, many millions, who are in this position one way or another. Obviously, the primary part of that is for the elderly, but there are also people obviously caring for younger members of their family and, and things of that nature. So, yes, it's huge, and it's not a reality which is reflected. It's not a, it's not a reality that you can really market to it's not a fashionable demographic um and it doesn't really have a sound demographic basis but it does i guess have a demographic tendency if you, as you've pointed out and that's people probably in you know what you've called middle age middle, middle years i was i was 47 uh, when this started happening and i'm 52 now and obviously i'd love to be 47 again but um so yeah i think it does strike that generation um perhaps that, that's the more typical, if you like, age group that this happens to. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, it's well, so the thing itself is perhaps recognized. But what is less talked about is what you might call the emotional ambivalence, the conflicts that come with that, because this is not a straightforward role to undertake. I think whether you're a volunteer or whether you're a kind of odd mixture of volunteer and sort of um, refugee like I was. So I want to get to the psychological reaction of the carer in a moment. But I do think as a doctor, I'm really interested in this subject because I think the doctor's medicine, uh, the professionalization of care neglects carers in a poor society or historically hundreds of years ago when medicine was less well developed. Basically, everyone understood care involved people living with you, your family looked after you. And it still happens out there in very poor parts of the world. 
Um, in the modern world, doctors ignore carers, in my opinion, and I'm interested in your experience. Um, often they're seeing the patient and they're not considering that actually a large amount of the care is being delivered by the carer. The carer has a huge amount of information, which the doctor often remains oblivious to, that would be crucial in trying to manage uh, any patient. So carers seem to be marginalised, yet they're slap bang in the middle of the conundrum. And also they're neglected in terms of psychological support. Everyone is, is thinking a bit about the person at the centre who's very ill, perhaps understandably, but the care are hovering around the periphery who's doing all the work of looking after the person, their psychological needs seem completely ignored. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think those are all good points. And there's some intersectional issues there as well. I mean, the, the sort of psychological support of older people it is you know I think it is not what it could be anyway and perhaps you know there are some generational aspects to that I'm not sure how receptive that generation is to therapy compared to say yours and mine Raj so that the, I, I did very much think god I wish there was somebody here who could talk to them who wasn't me so I saw if you like a sort of therapeutic a conversational need that I, I felt I couldn't fulfill and I've seen professional carers who you know I've since had to interact with that um the, that sort of immense cohort of people fulfill that role in a in a way that's actually liberated by not being part of someone's family so there is a therapeutic aspect to that professional care but from the what, the therapeutic needs of the carers themselves which is to say the family members who who end up in the situation unsupported yeah I think that's um that is a, that is an under an underserved community I mean it's not difficult and, and I think quite well documented how you know carers are you know the, the fiscal support is very very minimal and I think has been completely destroyed by the recent inflationary um, things that have happened in the economy there was a small rise to to carers allowance recently I think it's still under 40 pounds a week and obviously a lot of people um, you know give up things which are also very important for your psychological well-being as you well know work isn't just about money so the things which one sets aside to adopt this role are things which psychologically support you as well as perhaps financially so there is I suppose a small amount of money paid towards your well-being but to one's sort of one's mental health is is perhaps under underserved to say the least because it's a profoundly challenging situation on on that level and I think you're right um you know my interactions with the what I would call the medical part of the establishment the NHS and and really you know as I said in the book you become if you're if you're in a house looking after an old person or a couple of old people you're a kind of outpost really it's almost like you become a franchise and I think you know that's it's obviously on one level it's much better for people to remain at home not all people necessarily but I think from, from my parents case it was good that they were there and so people like district nurses, practice nurses, occasionally doctors themselves visiting. That all made very good sense in terms of what you could do at home up to a point. However, I often felt in a kind of quite a profound conflict with doctors in hospital, let's say, because their, their goal was to generally get my father out of there as quickly as possible, lest he you know, become a bed block or any of these other sort of terms which are probably as appropriate as they are cruel and you know my attempts to try and uh, fear-driven attempts really to not ha have a patient released back into the home that I couldn't cope with and of course my situation was complicated because my mother was very elderly as well and a good part of my job was trying to kind of if you like referee the 
sort of very primal dynamics of this 60 year old marriage um, in, in which, you know, my mum would just try and help my dad. My dad would expect my mum to help her, but they were both too frail really for that sort of thing to happen, but they couldn't sort of break those habits. So, so that something as simple, the margins of what's possible and what is not possible in terms of somebody's personal care needs and their mobility, it doesn't take much before the thing becomes a thing that can't be done. And, um, you know, and so any incremental shift in either of their health would have had a significant outcome on it. It's, it's like you, and again, this speaks to the psychological stress. It's like you're inhabiting a very unstable structure, really, like a house of cards or something like that. And you just think, well, God, if one thing happens here, everything changes. And you also, there are so many potential outcomes which can happen um, that you, you really understand that you're not in a situation that is really ultimately under your control. And the underlying factor, of course, is the you know profound mortality of people who you you know if you're lucky you love them you know that might not be a given either love in itself is not necessarily and never is a straightforward thing so all these things really intersect and make the situation a hell of a thing yeah i mean let's talk about the psychological impact on you and the stress i mean you you, you write very um humorously and irreverently about a very obvious thing that people are, are loath to talk about which is it's the irritating looking after your parents quite a lot of the time and they can be really irritating people yet it's difficult you've got to bite your lip and, and hang in there um tell us a bit about that bit that they they really can be very irritating but it's difficult to be honest about that yeah i mean it's it, i mean there's a danger i think of conflating aspects of people's behavior to deeper aspects of their character there are just the practical things so yeah thank you for saying that you know you, you found the things that dealt with humorously that is a very deep, I suppose, defense mechanism of mine. I can't, obviously one can't envision a different version of oneself and, and be honest about that vision. I, I can't imagine how I would have coped. And I have to thank my parents for having, you know, as a household, you know, that's where I was taught to see things in, in, in more than one dimension. And one of those dimensions being a sort of comedic way of looking at things. So I owe it that. This of course is a strange thing about looking after your parents. You, I, if one is, you know, interested in, I suppose, how we're formed by those early relationships, then it, one's irritability and one's tolerance, is, to certain degrees, legacy projects of the situation in which you now find yourself. Now, the degree to which you find that in itself irritating, you know, many of us escape from the places that we're sort of growing up in and think, right, this is going to be different, my life's going to be different, my family will be different. And so when you go back there, and these dynamics, patterns, call them what you want, everything starts to reenact itself, like those people who, you know, go to Leicestershire and reenact key battles from the Civil War. It feels like that, except for you're not, you're not really in costume, but these do feel like old conflicts, old habits coming back. And then, of course, there is the, the you know, the practicality of, of, of the thing itself, which is that if someone, if somebody has mobility issues, they, you know, they are going to need you to do stuff for them. And anyone who's worked with anyone who has those things knows there's, a, you know, it, it, you know, not, not everyone's polite to everyone all the time. The more you hear those things, the more impatient you get. My parents' house is phenomenally hot at all times. So that sort of adds to the, the sort of climate of um, potential drama. Um, and, uh, you know, my mum, you know, my mum had quite, ha has issues with her hearing and deafness. So things get repeated. So consequently, a lot of things are getting shouted 
and, and things of that nature. And each of those things, which can be very funny, can also be really, really quite challenging. So, it, and, and then of course you face the guilt because if you do lose patience with the people that you're looking after, which I think is very natural, and you know, a thing gets said that you would rather didn't get said or, or something is done in a way which is impatient rather than kind. And, you know, let's be realistic here. You're probably doing a thousand separate things in a week. So if you just take the statistics of that, they're, they're, those moments are going, I mean, I'm not ruling out the fact that there are people out there of a saintly disposition who can sort of sail through this in some unruffled and munificent way. God bless them. They don't need my advice. They don't need my book. They don't need help. But I think that's probably a very small minority of people, if indeed such a group of people exists at all, because it, it, it reaches into you, it tests you. And, and you know, and I now that the book's out, I'm getting feedback from other people in similar situations. I, I was anyway, but it's, it's increased, you know, in the last week or so since the book's been out there. You know, I'm, I'm opening emails every day for people in this situation who are full of regret for the way that they treated people that they were close to. And, and many of those people are now dead and they, you know, they're living with the aftermath of their own sort of ambivalent behavior and, and struggling to process it. And, and I think speaking to me, because, you know, I, I, and I have a, I don't have a big message here, but I think, I, I think we have to be more realistic about this and less idealistic about these situations if we're able to sort of move through them in a realistic way and sort of forgive ourselves really. Now, one of the things I think that you handle really well in the book, and it's a really, again, a bit of an unspoken taboo, is the sheer indignity of the intimate stuff one has to do for one's parents, which one kind of never yeah. imagined one would have to do. There is a, a lovely, if I can use that word, maybe it's not the right word, um, scene where your father, let me be blunt here, um, has been in fecally incontinent, basically. Yeah. And you're, you're clearing it up. And I won't say what happens. I won't spot, but something else even worse happens to you um and there's, it's quite a humorous scene as well but i do think there's something it's a great act of love in the way that you do it because you're trying to obviously do it in a very you're not gonna you're not trying to reveal to him that it's horrible you, you get on with it right there is a sense in which that kind of intimate indignity thing that we do if we're forced to or have to for our parents is the ultimate act of love you you clearing up a baby's nappy is not the same thing because a baby's oblivious or children are oblivious but for a parent it's a whole other thing so that's a deep issue that i think isn't discussed openly again what are your thoughts well i, I very much agree with you i mean yeah so the euphemistic term which covers other things as well for that is personal care right um so that's what that will fall under the remit of if you're sort of hiring someone to do these things i think but yeah once you get into that those levels of intimacy or, and i i suspect that most many people have run these things as kind of speculative dark fantasies about growing old in addition to losing one's mind i suspect becoming incontinent is probably number two on the on, on on the sort of chart of sort of imagined fears in that situation because of the you know because of the symbolism because of what it needs from people and certainly you know people would rather that it wasn't there or generally speaking i'm sure they would rather that it wasn't their their kids doing that stuff i think it was a great relief to my dad when uh you know he actually became a bit iller and it wasn't possible to argue about having to get professional people um, to come and help us out um, but yes but from my point of view personally I mean obviously you sort of cross your fingers and think oh Christ that'd be great if that didn't happen again today but when it does um, and and so I, I haven't had children of my own so I can't make a direct sort of um, comparison here but I've, I've looked after plenty of them yeah it's it is very different from 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 dealing with the kind of the, the intimate needs of a child because um well i mean you know it's like but people this is a very a very common thing for yourself must be looking after a baby and i have said many times now when it's like well no it isn't 
you know, babies, you can enfold yourself in the narrative that they are going to learn how to not do this. They are on an, they're on a completely different trajectory. Very few skills are recovered in, in these stages of life. Things are going in a different direction. Also, you know, you can pick up some babies with one hand, you know, even frail old people at seven, eight, start, you know, the whole navigation of it is different. And of course, all the emotional stuff of, of this being a person with whom you have all this prior history, all your kind of internalized, um, I don't know, it depends on, I suppose, your sort of psychological thinking, objects, archetypes about who your parents are and who you are, are, are under attack by this. And, and, and cleaning up, you know, cleaning up someone um, when, they, when they haven't been able to make it to the toilet. Or, I mean, I actually found it, to be honest with you, and I'm, I'm, I'm very touched you picked this up from the book. I, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but once you've got over the, oh, my God, it's happened again thing, then there isn't really anywhere to sort of hide. And, and there, there is something to be said for the removal of all embarrassment. I mean, you wouldn't seek it out. I wonder if you know what I mean. I'm sure some people listening can relate. But, you know, when you are covered in, I don't know if I can say, that's that. And so if we accept that, you know, elements of the movie the Shawshank Redemption here perhaps then there is, there is a kind of weird freedom on the other side of it not that you want it to happen every day and actually you know I did me and my dad wouldn't you, you luckily for us we could laugh about it so you you come over or as a certain personality in the book as being actually pretty resilient and phlegmatic and you you seem to have an attitude which is about trying at least endeavoring to cope um, what are your thoughts about the necessary coping skills and what are your thoughts about your background personality that that assisted you? And what are your thoughts about the parts that were not so helpful in terms okay, of well, that's assisting? A, that's a good, good three-part question. Um, so in terms of coping skills, I mean, so again, just to frame it, I was in a, a because so many things have gone wrong in my life, I think I probably did have a, an internal narrative, a need to try and do something right um, and, you know, having come out of a, you know, having had a marriage, having come out of my marriage, I think I also was probably trying to create, you know, it becomes very difficult when things go wrong in your life. You end up, I end up thinking, I, I want to try and do a good thing. So it was, I suppose, on some level appealing to me. So I had that kind of, I, I had a need in my life. I didn't feel like the world owed me anything. I felt like, and I, you know, you know, my brother and my sister have both had children and things like that, and I hadn't done it. So I had, I had pretty much done what I wanted with my life, which is, you know, not always the greatest, <laughs> the greatest thing that can happen to a person. Um, and uh, and so I, 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 if I had to frame the story, and I guess this is a coping skill, perhaps, can you mentally make sense of what's happening to you? Place this within to your sort of narrative and not totally resent it. And I was able to kind of look at it and go, actually it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt you here to sort of do some things that you didn't want to do for a few months maybe a couple of years you know I didn't really have a plan b so in, in a strange way that was quite helpful as to stuff that was perhaps more innate to my personality and not linked to my circumstances certainly a sense of humor um that was helpful I mean I you know I do have I think a good I, I had I should say a goodish relationship with my parents you know we kind of got along you know I say in the book you know we had our baggage but it wasn't like th th there was no real challenging submerged bits of iceberg level sort of hidden stuff floating around that I think caused you know could really cause a lot of trouble so certainly that was helpful um 
you know, my, my dad was on a decent pension, so that helped. I mean, I, I it will be tougher if you know if if you haven't if you haven't got some financial latitude in your life. That's obviously going to add stress to, to any kind of situation. Um, as to aspects of my personality which made it harder, yeah, I am definitely quite an impatient person. Um, I find it I find it quite difficult when things move slowly or. Or, or people are indecisive, or, or and, and I, I've no, I've no desire to sort of put a kind of positive spin on my experience here. But weirdly enough, I'm much better with that stuff now. And I think there's probably some sort of age-appropriate stuff for that. It's no, it's no bad thing. I think you know my ambitions have kind of fallen apart before this happened, and that's obviously a part of things that you think should happen to you by a certain stage in your life. So some of those things, which I think were sort of I thought were part of my nature, have actually actually loosened up a bit now and I'm 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 grateful for that because it's you are in a situation that and I've said this at the end of the book it's um uh, everyone particularly corporate entities which is a good reason to be suspicious of the message uh, sell this idea that you're involved in some kind of story now everyone talks about storytelling and these things and you know I of course have written a book about it but the, the nature of one's narrative can also be a terrible trap I think and if you think things are going to be a certain way or your role in the family or your 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 position in the family constellation what kind of child you were what kind of person you are all these things that are wrapped into people's identity i found it so challenging and so unpredictable that in the end you sort of have to leave those things behind because the that particular version of present moment what what living in a house with your two elderly parents who are always going to be different on a particular day. The reality that that threw up was so unpredictable that it kind of tore apart any, any sort of conventional story structure that you were trying to tell. And I had this issue with the book where I was thinking, you know, and obviously talking to my publisher and stuff at the time, it, I, th there's a tendency to try and tie things up nicely. But this is not a reality that ties up nicely. But that in itself doesn't have to be a bad thing. You know, my intention, if, insofar as I have sort of things other than doing the work itself and writing the book, was to try and write a kind of story that was a kind of also a sort of danger, a, a sort of warning about the dangers of story. Because if you're always trying at the end of every day or while you're doing difficult things, to try and think of it as like, oh, it's got a beginning, the middle and end, and this happened. And, and it's like, I, I think it pushes back against that. It's way, it's, it's, for me, it was a very anarchic experience, but equally perhaps cathartic because it stripped away some less, help, help, some less helpful parts of who I thought I was as well. Now, the bit that you said, and it wasn't so clear to me when I read the book, and it's useful to talk to you, that you, in a way, um, you didn't really have other pressing needs in your life. At the, you, you weren't trying to think, you weren't impatient to get back to work or get back to a wife or get back to children. So I think one of the big coping skill messages is your, your acceptance that this is what you have to do. You have to look after your parents. I think for many people, what gets in their way is they're thinking, this is getting in the way of what I need to do. I need to be back home. I need to be pursuing my career. And looking after your parents or looking after anyone with an illness, seeing it as an obstacle to your life, as opposed to this is what life is. This is my life, which I think is kind of what you did. Maybe it, you won't necessarily agree, but maybe it's so obvious that it's you, you didn't say it explicitly. But I do think that's an important part of coping. We, we struggle to cope when we're thinking our parents or the person who's ill that I'm looking after is getting in the way of what I really want to do. Then, then you're getting into more trouble. 
in terms of coping. Any thoughts about that? I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think I was very lucky. The gift of my situation, as you say, was that I couldn't, I couldn't sell myself a story about needing to be somewhere else. So that doesn't stop me or any human being lamenting what has gone on, right? You can still get the violin out. And maybe that violin is, you know, a very valid violin let's end that analogy there so you can you can weep for what was even as you deal with what is or what might have been but I wasn't pulled away it wasn't like oh I should be on the other side I should have done this I should have, I should be doing that now now there are a few times when I did that those things were a little bit like that but I realized very quickly um and, and this I hope is potentially useful to anyone who's you know in this situation or thinking about it you, you do have dominion in, in terms of how you view what's happening to you. And, you know, and the definition of stress is something like this, about, isn't it about two different forces trying to coexist in the same space? If as you do thing A, difficult though thing A, B, it may be, if you're part of your mental self is, is enraged about what's also happening in location B and how you should be there, then you're, you're shot by both sides. The, the nature of what it is you're trying to do will be corrupted by that which you believe you would be doing. And you yourself will be consumed or, or sort of mentally, physically, emotionally aware of that dissonance. And that, I think, a, a good part of people's anger and frustration and impatience, and, you know, my, my impatience, I think, was just some part of my nature. But it, I was lucky that I could separate it out of the situation. And, you know, I mean, without sort of potentially putting too too great a foot into the spiritual here it is that idea of if you can be present with it and i and i think most people could you know if they sought to do so at least manage their mental framing of the situation like that then 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 things which which, which strike because it's being very very difficult actually get a bit easier because we're not we're not boring them or telling ourselves another story. There's that word again, while they are unfolding. So I think you're absolutely correct in that. So I was fortunate my circumstances gave me that, but I also, I also believe and have experienced that you can, you can cultivate a kind of framework of, 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 of feeling like that as well. Now, you are in therapy in the book. You, you're seeing a psychotherapist and you do mention yeah. um, some of the consultations. So I get the feeling you were in therapy before the thing that happened with your parents. So I'm interested a little bit in why, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, why you were in therapy, what what kind of therapy was it? Were you seeing the person every week, once a week, once every two weeks? And to what extent was it helpful um, in, in helping you cope? I should also say, and we did have a little bit of a banter about this before we started the interview, that it, it felt to me there was a, there are lots of different kinds of therapy and therapists are often competitive you know, with each other in terms of different schools of therapy. Um, it's a bit like left-wing politics. There are lots of different minor groups that are, you know, um, a bit like they've seen from um, the life of Brian. Um, People's Front uh, of Judea, yeah. People's yeah, Front of um, yeah. Psychodynamic Thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She she does seem to offer you interpretations and is a little bit what we would call psychodynamic or um, interpretive, as opposed to being action-oriented. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just explaining the difference, um, which is the classic cla CBT thing, cognitive behavioral therapy thing that the NHS tends to offer as opposed to private practice, which is much more short-term, six sessions, um, goal-oriented, think a different way, and then you'll be a different way. It's much more pragmatic and um, concrete and let's get on with it type thing. Anyway, so first of all, just could you say a little bit about the kind of therapy and did you find it helpful and did it change? Was it 
did it change from before to during you going through this with your parents? Okay, so I was not in therapy before this situation evolved. I had prior to the circumstances which led to the end of my marriage, I had had a bit of CBT on the NHS, seven sessions, whatever the provision was at the time, and that was in the previous year. And I thought that was all well and good and quite helpful. Um, but it was about a year after that, after I'd been with mum and dad for a few months, that I I started to really profoundly feel that I um, I needed something else. And I had had mental health challenges before, and so I I know... I recognised the, the the feelings um, around that. I could kind of, I began to become quite wary. I you know I know what it feels like to sort of begin to break down, and I was aware that something like that was starting to feel like it might be on the horizon. And I thought that I have to go and try and find someone to speak to. So I I asked a friend of mine for a referral and managed to get one. And I, I did start seeing a therapist during that time um, for about two years so and it and and I think they're probably mentioned five or six times in the book so you know we we that that would be five and six anecdotes from well I would say 100 meetings but actually it was probably because I was not seeing a therapist in the town where my mum and dad lived I would come back to London to to see to see that person I and actually to her credit I found it very useful I'm aware that there are certain modalities who are very strict about the framing and, and the frequency and things like that. She agreed to see me as and when because the, 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 the implicit, unpredictable nature of what mum and dad needed meant that I just couldn't say, look, let's do this every Wednesday or whatever it was. So she was able to accommodate that. It was probably fortnightly. She was, I think, coming from a gestalt tradition, but had... I suppose, as any therapist does over time, bought her own, you know, she was an experienced person. Um, I think perhaps bought her own aspects to that. Um, and yeah, and so we continued with that over a, over a two year period. Um, and I found it, I found it very, very helpful indeed. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and, and, you know, moving back in with your parents is a wonderful it's, you know, it's like a sort of Freudian boot camp. You are going to go into your teenage bedroom, as I did. You are going to get confronted by the past. And also, you know, difficult as it is, one does have quite a bit of time on one's hand. So it can be a useful, reflective space. So I hadn't had any pro- what I call proper therapy, no disrespect to CBT, um, prior, <laughs> prior to that point. And so that was my first sort of experience of that kind of thing. So I did it from you know, from day one, square one. And like many people, you know, I came, certainly like many men, I believe, I came because I was in a sort of practical life crisis, you know, divorce, this, that, unemployment, identity crisis, call it what you will. I was flat out of ideas about who I was and what to do. Um, Are you, I'm not not sure if I'm allowed to ask, but I will ask, are you still in therapy? Uh, No, I'm not. And that's, my reasons for that are not reflection on the therapy itself, but it was partly, it was private therapy. Um, Again, the therapist in question was, you know, was very sympathetic to my circumstances, took a bit of a discount, but it was, um, I I couldn't, I I couldn't, I couldn't financially kind of, uh, kind of countenance it after two years. And also that there was certain things that sort of, had changed you know I had managed to find somewhere to live again um which I hadn't done for that two period when I was you know when I had to live with mum and dad as well as them needing me and actually it was because I had managed to get a flat that I was like okay I I actually do need that money now 
So, but that, but that was also attached to a, you know, to, to life really changing itself around. If I had, if I had, um, if, if I had more income at that time, I would have, I would have certainly continued with it. And um, I'm, I am keen, I'm keen to go back. Um, and I think I will do maybe later this year um, and, and see someone, someone different, maybe working in a different modality. But I, yeah, because I feel there was unfinished business there. I also feel like it'd be very good for me to, to, to do it, to experience it with a, with a male practitioner as well. So one final question, and it's a very, very tough question. And there's a sense in which I think your book is also very relevant for another debate, which is the assisted dying debate. And um, there is a suicide attempt in the book. And again, I won't go into the details or spoil the story um, for, uh, for future readers. But um, this is a very problematic area, isn't it? In that the carer who is a family member at home looking after some quite ill people is wondering whether these people really want to stay alive and whether their quality of life is such that maybe they'd be better off not alive. Um, well, could, you, I mean, could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, here's the taboo within the taboo, if you like. You know, we kicked off by talking about this being an arena as itself that, that, that is perhaps under-discussed, under-represented, whatever we want to say. And then, yeah, um, end-of-life stuff, euthanistic intentions on behalf of the elderly um, is is a hidden thing within that. And uh, I don't know what the, the, the statistics are for that. It did, it, it did come up, it did get acted on, um, at not, not all the way, um, uh, mercifully or not, I don't know. I mean, there's the ambivalence for you. Um, and, uh, and, and then as I began, uh, uh, you one experiences this generationally, uh, another friend of mine's parent also was taking steps um, towards something like that, then changed their mind. And I also, this is not in the course of trying. This isn't like me going, oh, I'm the person to write about care. This is, this is just what was happening in my ordinary life. I also met someone whose parents lived in continental Europe and had taken their own lives. And he was very, very upset about that. Um, you know, he'd asked them not to, and they, they'd carried on with it. So even as anyone, I think, listening to this understands, there isn't like a, there isn't like a, a, a way to change what, what's legal or permissible without bringing in fresh complications as well. But all across the board, I think there has to be a, a more realistic understanding of what it is we're trying to do to ourselves if we're the old people and the people that we care for, you know, and, and, and what the NHS's relationship is with elderly care um, because we have the situation where we've become excellent at prolonging life and then in this ambivalent dysfunctional space about the quality of, of that life and whose responsibility it is to maintain that quality. And it becomes a kind of emotional economic bonfire keeping these individuals going um, into which lives and money and resources can be endlessly consumed. And, you know, it would seem to me to be mature and wise that we, we, we looked more deeply and realistically at the idea that then perhaps there's a scenario where if people don't don't want it to continue we should be looking to, to help that out and to legislate for for safe ways of that happening rather than rather than rendering it you know completely taboo illegal unacceptable and sort of shady so i know i said i had the final question this is really really the final final question um if there are doctors or professionals listening to this do you have any advice as someone who has been through this caring experience and lived with these two elderly people for those professionals doctors and so on from the standpoint of a carer do you have any advice for them in terms of 
how they should be thinking about people that were and are in your situation? I think it's, and this is a thing that I, I, th I know people talk about across the board. So I'm not a healthcare professional, but you know, one becomes expert in the areas where one needs to be. It is, I think, about the whole picture of, of, of the person and the people around them, um, as opposed to just the patient and the ailment and the apparently this is the drug regimen, these are the projections. You know, it's it is about the understanding. And again, I understand that you know people working in the NHS and stuff have have real and debilitating limits placed on their time and their resources. You know, I was you know, there are people, and I hope I alluded to this in the book, and it's happened since. I found it's generally when people, by virtue of their character, have overstepped the kind of strictures of their position that a lot of the most miraculous um, things happen. So I think it's obviously a systemic issue. You know, I think practitioners need to be given the latitude to look at, at families and circumstances and the intersection of carers and families and caring within families as a whole thing because you know there's also there's a dreadful and i'm sure anyone listening to this knows there's a dreadful short-termism in just looking at the individual because the individual's progress and their needs are connected to other individuals i would have to lobby quite hard in hospital you know for the kind of to get more support for my father when he came out because i knew if my mother injured herself helping my father then they would both be hospitalized and that's, you know, and on one level, it was like, well, I would have loved to have had an empty house, but from a from a from a healthcare level, then you've got two beds taken up. So I do think there's a way of framing that kind of, I don't even know if holistic is the right word, but that the looking at the totality of the situation to better manage it by realizing that this isn't, I mean, if you're lucky, I mean, obviously there are old people who are on their own, and that's a that's a sort of separate but sort of correlated tragedy. But if you take if you take the old person, their family, and their carers as a group, if that's possible, then I think better outcomes are possible. Well, thank you very much indeed for talking to us about your wonderful book. The book is called The Reluctant Carer. We've been talking to the Reluctant Carer, and the book is uh, the subtitle is Dispatches from the Edge of Life, and it's published by Picador. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Raj.